0: Day on Against the Grain, The Anatomy of a People's Victory, The Courageous, Successful Struggle to Prevent the Construction of a Massive Airport on Thousands of Acres of Forest and Fields in Western France. I'm CS, two prominent participants describe the now iconic struggle and their understanding of art, organizing and commoning coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. They took a stand and they won. They squatted the land. They formed an autonomous zone. They defended 4,000 acres of hedgerows and wetlands, farmland and forest, against police assaults and incursions, and they prevented, with the help of a multitude of allies, the planned construction of a massive international airport near the French city of Nantes. How did they do it? What drove them to defend the area, to stop the airport in the face of often brutal police repression? The Against All Odds story is told in a new pamphlet called We Are Nature Defending Itself, Entangling Art, Activism, and Autonomous Zones. The authors, Isabelle Fremont and Jay Jordan, lived, still live, on the site, a place called the ZAD, short for, in French, Zone to Defend. Fremont is a popular educator, action researcher, and former senior lecturer in media and cultural studies at Birkbeck College, London. Jordan is co-founder of Reclaim the Streets and the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army and the co-editor of the volume We Are Everywhere, The Irresistible Rise of Global Anti-Capitalism. Isa Fremont and Jay Jordan are also co-coordinators of the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. Six weeks ago, an event to celebrate the pamphlet's release was held by the Reimagining Value Action Lab at Lakehead University in Ontario, Canada. The event's host was Lakehead professor Max Haven, who edits the Vagabonds series of Pluto Press, as a part of which We Are Nature Defending Itself was recently published. Today, we'll present edited portions of that event, during which Fremont and Jordan recounted the years-long struggle to organize and defend the ZAD, and also described how they've come to understand the relationship between art, activism, commoning, and insurrection. Here's Isabelle Fremont.
1: We're delighted to, uh, to speak from um, our yurt here. Um, that is pretty much where the, the control tower of an in- international airport um, could have stood. And this is what we're going to tell you about. Um, this, is a, this is a book about, we hope, um, about victory and hope. And we feel that um, stories of hope are, are very much necessary at the moment um this book indeed took a long time coming in years in fact and that's mostly because we tend to prioritize action over words and uh and the writing was put on hold many times um to put our lives and our bodies in the way of the building of a infernal piece of life-wrecking um Infrastructure that is an international airport that was planned for the wetlands on which uh, on which we we are, and uh, and as our one of our great ancestors of land occupation and squatting and radical commenting and pamphlet writing, winstanley Stanley wrote over 300 years ago, words and writings were all nothing and must die. Action is the life of all, and we feel that it's really important to uh, to have that in mind today. Um, the title of this pamphlet: We are nature defending itself is even older than the start of the of the writing and we actually first saw it um, in the midst of an action back in 2012 um, and it was tattooed on the forearm of a comrade in a in a muddy tear gas field forest uh, just next uh, to here and she was basically throwing uh, tear gas canisters back at the cops when the French government thought that they could just come with their troops and, and build their airports. And this is what we're gonna tell you um, about tonight, how they could not. Um, we uh, we also first used the, the slogan for an experiment that we co-facilitated in, in 2015 with our collective, the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. And basically the, the pamphlet tells our story, our very personal version um, of the, the story of the lab and our journey to try to really, truly entangle art activism and everyday life. And so this is where we've been living since uh, 2016, in this uh, squatted farmhouse called La Rolandière, which is bang in the middle of these 4,000 acres of land that were due for um, a new airport near near Nantes. Um, it's um, it's a landscape known as bockage, which is uh, typically made of these small fields with uh, many hedgerows around them, um, and these were due to be concreted over this particular the bockage is uh, made partly of wetlands. There are nine springs here that are key to the watersheds and also uh, made of farmland. We are with our own anonymous um, cows. It's um, it's a project that has been planned since 1963. It was due first to be um, a base for the Concorde and then um, aerial Rotterdam. I mean, there were great plans for this, uh, for this massive uh, piece of infrastructure, which was immediately resisted uh, from the very uh, beginning in the 60s by local farmers who understood that it makes no sense to destroy uh, nourishing land to build this kind of uh, of uh, infrastructure that only leads to the desertification of uh, of the countryside it's also very important to have in mind that these are lands of resistance and struggle on this particular region in france was the the territory that saw the the birth and development of a movement called the paysan travailleurs the farmers workers that um, denounced the growing proletarization of um, of farmers and were making links uh, with workers for instance uh, during the first factory occupation in May 68, which took place near Nantes, the the farmers from around here built a network to be able to bring food to the to the occupying strikers. Um, It is also the region, Brittany is the only region in France that doesn't have nuclear power stations because all the projects were defeated by popular resistance. So it was not a good idea to plan this, um, this airport on these great lands of resistance. The project, followed the whims of markets and politicians and kind of went into uh, dormancy for quite a, a few years. But it got taken out of the cardboard boxes um, in the, the year 2000 when the government relaunched the project and the, the resistance reactivated immediately but expanded this time beyond just farmers And um, a lot of um, local residents joined and and developed mostly legal resistance through using uh, laws about endangered species, uh, laws to protect water, etc. The airport was obviously due to be a green airport and uh, and one of the one of the most um, interesting maybe uh, dimensions of this green airport was described in the brochure by the uh, by the architects they said that it would be there would be um, a vegetated roof uh, that would merge so well in the surrounding landscape that it would look like a side of the bookage that would rise up Uh, the bookage indeed did rise up but not quite in the way that they had expected In 2009, there was really a turning point in the struggle where inspired by climate camps in the UK, some people uh, came back with the idea and organized a climate camp on the site uh, in Notre Dame des Landes, uh, very, very near where we're we're sitting right now. Um, And during this climate camp, there was an open letter that had been written the year before by local residents who had, who had grown a bit fed up with the lack of direct action uh, of the the state of the struggle at the time, but most importantly had realized that the government was buying land and farms to make way for the airport, and therefore was emptying the the territory. And, uh, And in their letter, they said to defend a territory, you need to inhabit it. And basically invited people to come and squat land and farms to be able to really uh, uh, give a new boost to the to the resistance and that's and at the end of the climate camp when the tents and the marquees were packed up um, a few dozen people um, answered to the invitation and stayed and this is really where the slogan against the airport and its world came into life what is interesting is that ZAD is actually a hack and it's the hack of a of a planning term ZAD is an acronym that means zone aménagement différé a zone where the development is going to be happening later. And so that means that the territory is, uh, is earmarked and nothing much happens because it needs to be left for further development. Um, the irony is that on these 4,000 acres, one of the things that did not happen because it had been earmarked, as ZAD for the airport was what we call in French the Remembrement, i.e. the destruction of hedgerows to make way for industrial agriculture. That didn't happen. And when basically in 2009, the climate camp uh, turned into the ZAD, it became the zone a no longer the zone aménagement différé. And it was the the beginnings of what would become uh, this world famous autonomous zones where people started to um, build huts and, uh, and tree houses, some that were more punk and uh, some more futuristic. There were floating cabins on lakes, um, many that were entangled with the 222 kilometers of hedgerows that formed the, the bockage here. And what they also did was to actually make links with local farmers, not always in very easy ways. It can't be said that it was um, that it was plain sailing, but making links to, uh, to begin to farm um, and produce in the way of the airport. As you can imagine, that was not um, that was not seen in a very positive light by the by the government, who in 2012 on the 16th of October 2012 launched um, a massive military operation to evict the squatters Um, it was called operation caesar which in the land of asterix was also um, rather a a strategic mistake Um, and basically when the when the cops when the thousands of cops descended they faced they were faced with a resistance that was more diverse and more determined than anyone had expected and when they turned up they basically didn't know whether they would be faced with burning barricades or old age pensioners singing peace songs to them. There was really um, quite full-on conflict to more non-violent resistance to treehouse evictions mud was a great ally during that very wet winter um, there was very good slingshot actions um, and there was also the demonstration of one's vulnerability through uh, showing naked bodies to the lines of of robocops and all the way to some good old viking resistance despite that extraordinary resistance 12 farmhouse and collective were destroyed uh, within a matter of days. But something else happened in the blockage at that time, something that was very unexpected. And that is the coming together of different forces that were not supposed to come together. And that really came to light on the 17th of November, 2012. There had been a call out that had been produced more than a year before that had said, if they evict, we'll come back exactly a month later and rebuilt what has been destroyed. And at the time, Jay and I were, were living an hour away. Um and when we saw that call out, we had been involved in the resistance against the evictions. And when we saw that call out, we thought, well obviously it's it's very important to um to take part. We will go, but it's very likely that it'll be it will be small. It's like everyone will be exhausted, the attention most of the attention will be put on anti repression, we'll build a symbolic cabin, and that'll be it. That's not quite what happened.
2: The 40,000 people came and many of them were organized groups with pre-built cabins in tractors. Lots of cabins were built this weekend with an amazing energy. Lots of people say it was the most beautiful day of my life. It, we were sharing an intense moment, of unexpected. On this day, we really had the impression we would win against this awful project. Every morning at six o'clock, we were on the barricades, masked and ready to do I don't know what. Personally, for example, I didn't know how to resist, uh, but I was there. For many, many people, it was like that. They didn't came the first day. They didn't came the second day. They didn't came the third day. On the Friday morning at six o'clock, the police came. They destroyed the cabins we had built. They also began to stop the work in La Châtaigne, which is the village we had built for this demonstration.
1: The cops tried to attack, not having understood that when you have 40,000 people who have built this together, they're going to have even more uh, motivation to defend it. The tension really, really rose. For three days, there were loads of offensive grenades being used, flashballs, and thousands of cartridges of tear gas. More than 100 people got injured, and then the government realized that they were about to kill someone, and the government had been in place for not long enough for them to take the risk of killing someone, so they withdrew pretty much since 2013 the cops haven't set foot on the zone and this is a nod to the Zapatistas Uh, it actually says you are entering a free territory here the people decide because basically for six years it really became an extraordinary laboratory of of commoning where cops didn't set foot where institutional interventions did not, uh, did not have their place. And that gave rise to the most extraordinary flurry of, uh, of creativity. It was really a place where uh, it was possible to try to take one's uh, everyday life into one's own hands.
0: That's the voice of Isabelle Fremont speaking at a recent event about a new pamphlet she and Jay Jordan have written entitled We Are Nature Defending Itself entangling art activism and autonomous zones published by pluto press in collaboration with the journal of aesthetics and protest this is against the grain on pacifica radio my name is cs song we continue with more of fremont's remarks
1: i did speak there were 70 uh, squatted living collectives, more than 400 people, and an incredible diversity of activities, from v- vegetable growing to cereal growing, uh, sheep and cows herding, blacksmith, forestry activity, and cheesemaking. A library and pirate radio, rap studios, several bakeries—you name it—it um, it was there, and it was really there that we realized and we really experimented um, that uh, when you have to uh, to organize your own uh, shared life, then you have to put it and uh, you have to give it all your attention. And for us, that is what art is, is really paying attention. And, uh, and it was on the ZAD that we truly experimented the development of a technique of life, what Michel Foucault um, has called this art of living, where he said, couldn't everyone's life become a work of art? Why should the lamp or the house become an art object, but not our life? Um, and when that becomes uh, possible, the, the violent separations of the modern start to dissolve and this is really what we've seen on the ZAD that there is an attempt to break the rift between art and everyday life between resisting the world and building new ones between what is a home and what is a barricade between what is work and what is pleasure between what is life and what is activism and that actually can take the shape of radical camembert made from disobedient and squatting cows All that was made possible thanks to an extraordinary culture of resistance and that was deployed by the entire movement and what what we call culture of resistance is the fact that not everyone is able to put themselves on the front line and not able or not willing to put themselves on the front line but people can apply their skills and their uh, capabilities to radical movements and that was um, seen within this movement in the most flamboyant way and so for instance when the troops withdrew, local farmers organised themselves um, so that they could take care of each other's farm and put their tractors around the, the hamlet, link the tractors together and put out a communique saying, if you attack again, you'll have to destroy our, our work tools. The farmers have been absolutely key to this movement, but it's not just them, it's also electricians that helped uh, the squatters pirate electricity to occupy buildings, it's cooks that um, provided banquets for hundreds of people um, of the movement, it's doctors that healed those that had been hurt during the violent eviction attempts, it's lawyers that gave their services for free, it's local residents that opened their garage to store stuff when people had been evicted, It's, uh, it's everyone doing basically what they can to maintain that culture of resistance and it is really one of the key reasons why we came it's because what we had been looking for for so long that is what we call the DNA of interaction um, which is the intertwining of the yes and the no the creation and the resistance really what we found we found on the ZAD And it's really important for us to uh, to bear the necessity of this enmeshing of uh, of the yes and the no, because however many community gardens we design or we built or how many cooperative farms, um, cooperative wind farms we set up, if we don't dismantle the fossil fuel industries and the gross economy that supports uh, them, then our gardens, are likely to be underwater and, uh, and frankly, in the middle of spreading deserts, having clean energy becomes pretty useless. And we must learn from history is there actually the fallout from the 60s, the utopian alternative movements that split from revolutionary movement, that split from the resistance, when the, when the, the obsession was with building alternatives actually gave way to the World Wide Web and Silicon Valley and the surveillance capitalism uh, that has come out of it because there's this uh, desire to create communities of of otherness because of that separation ended up working with and for the very military industrial complex that they had been against decades earlier and that's because they're separated so it's really important to bear that in mind. All the while, uh, the French government obviously continued to say that they would come and build uh, the airport and so with every announcement, the movement responded with extraordinary uh, determination and creativity putting thousands of um, bodies and bikes. This is the occupation of the large bridge that uh, links the ZAD to the city of Nantes, where 20,000 people, 1,000 bikes and 500 tractors occupied it for an entire day. A month later, 60,000 people came partying on the motorways that surrounds the ZAD and where the building of the airport would have started with the the building of the access roads. We also organized rituals that were disguised as demonstrations and for instance, we we called for people to come with walking sticks and plant them in the soil of, the Notre, of Notre Dame de Landes, making the pledge that they would come and pick them up if there were attacks. 40,000 people came and 25,000 sticks were planted turning one of the hedgerows into the most fabulous porcupine. There were also acts of everyday magic, such as the building of a lighthouse that we can see from our window just now, and uh, exactly where they wanted to put the control tower of the airport. And so on the 17th of January, 2018, after more than 40 years of resistance, the airport was canceled uh, by the prime minister on live TV. And in the same breath, he also said that the illegals, i.e. all those who had come uh, to the invitation of uh, local residents had to legalize themselves or be evicted or leave. Um, A delegation of the movement produced a totally legally sound uh, document and said to the government, if you sign this, you want us to be legal, you sign this, we become legal and all is fine. Um, The answer to this proposal came on the 5th of April at um, 3.20 in the morning. um it was an extraordinary i mean it was a, a mighty military operation that involved tanks helicopters thousands of cops um within a matter of three days eleven thousand 000 grenades uh, concussion grenades and tear gas grenades had been thrown at people that were defending life on the bockage and um, and a third of the cabins of the zad were were destroyed um for us it makes no no doubt that basically the movement had to be punished. It had to be punished because because the government can deal with people saying no, demonstrating, um, even launching into confrontation to say no. What they cannot deal with is an entire movement that for several years and on a territory so vast is able to demonstrate and say you're useless, you are irrelevant and so, that was the the punishment for the ZAD and the, for the for the scandal that it represented um, against the the violence of the eviction. Uh, we kept uh, trying to rebuild again, and so this is a this is an infrastructure that was rebuilt um, within four days and carried by hand over several kilometers across fields to replace the community hall that had been uh, destroyed. It was destroyed immediately. And so the message was was pretty clear. After four days, the local uh, state representative um, declared a ceasefire and produced this simplified uh, form that basically said, um, if you put your name, a single name, with a single project and a plot of land associated with it, and you sign it, you will be able you will be able to stay. If you don't, you'll be evicted. Um, we had ten days. And uh, and that basically uh, gave rise to the most fractious and deepest wounds that the the movement um, probably had to to face because for quite a lot of people this was absolutely intolerable blackmail and dishonorable surrender uh, which for quite a lot of us was obviously also the case but. The violence of the pre- of the previous uh, four days had convinced us that the government was prepared to go all the way, and for us it was absolutely impossible to let go of the links that had been made there, links that had been made to the landscape, to other humans, to other more than humans, to the commons that we had been uh, building for for years, and so um, we made a gamble. Uh, a number of us made a gamble. Um, hacked the form and said, okay, you, you want names, we'll give you names, but we're going to demonstrate to you what the commons are, and so it is not possible to respond with what uh, you want, but we'll show you how under a name that is associated with a collective, um, there are various plots of lands that are all intertwined, that are totally enmeshed, because this is how the commons work. Um, It was a a very thick, very complex folder that was uh, handed in to the to the uh, state services, uh, so much so that they had to um, actually employ five people to be able to um, analyze them. And um, out of the 70 collectives that made up the ZAD at the time, 63 decided to take part in that gamble, seven. Refused, and basically their homes were destroyed uh, within a few days. So the message was very clear: um, you either you either sign or you get destroyed. And so this is where we are uh, right now. The farmland has been uh, secured through leases. Everything else is still in negotiation. Uh, we're still squatters of all the the buildings. And we're still uh, negotiating to uh, to make them accept and put into law what building a life in common and building the commons uh, can be on a on a territory that is that is alive.
0: Isabelle Fremont, co-author of We Are Nature Defending Itself, Entangling Art, Activism and Autonomous Zones, speaking at an event sponsored by the Reimagining Value Action Lab. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Fremont's co-author Jay Jordan also spoke at this event. Here Jay talks about the laboratory of insurrectionary imagination, of which he and Iza are co-coordinators.
3: So what do we do in the lab? Basically, we bring artists and activists together to create new forms of disobedience. Basically, the idea is to design and then to deploy new forms of disobedience. Key word being deploy. There are a lot of artists who do a lot of designing of forms of disobedience, which often stay in the museums and the galleries and the theatres. And for us, the, uh, the key is actually to deploy these things. So why do we bring artists and activists together? Uh, Basically, we believe that artists, and this is obviously a huge generalisation, but that artists have a certain amount of creativity, a way of thinking outside of the box. Um, They uh, also can really bring the poetic or the metaphorical to things, but they also tend to have pretty big egos, tend to put their career in front of their politics, tend to have a a lack of coherence between their political uh, ideas and their ways of life. Um, And Not much courage sometimes. But what do activists have? Well, we think activists, and this is also a generalization, have a lot more courage, um, have normally a capacity to work uh, collectively a bit better, uh, normally have less big egos, although that's not always the case, uh, but definitely have less space between their ways of life and their ideas uh and unfortunately have a lack of imagination quite often uh often it's the same toolbox of of rebellion and resistance the same actions you know the same like we're gonna do a demonstration we're gonna do a blockade we're gonna do a riot we're gonna do a strike we're gonna write a pamphlet we're gonna do an assembly we're gonna do a camp basically the toolbox is a bit small so for us the idea is basically to bring artists and activists together using the creativity of the artists and the courage of the activists and create these forms. We do that within kind of pedagogic uh, workshops where we teach horizontal decision-making and then start to design the direct action. Uh, What is pretty key is that these are always done within the context of uh, social movements, that we're entangled in social movements. Uh, We have one foot in the social movements and one foot in the cultural institutions and it's super important. For us, And the social movements we've been entangled with range from uh, the climate camps, the summit mobilizations, uh, and we always also work as organizers within those movements, not really making any difference between organizing and art.
0: And here, Jay Jordan talks about what happened at the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris in 2015, known as the COP21. Uh,
3: so. Paris. Uh, what do artists normally do though? What do artists normally do around a COP, around something like the COP21 in Paris? Well, this is Olafso Ellison and Minnick Rosing and they produced for that COP this project that was called Ice Watch and basically they brought huge blocks of ice from the Arctic and asked the citizens of Paris to watch them melt on the streets. This for us is a classic piece of what in the book we call extractivist art. Now extractivism, I'm sure many of you here already know what it is, but it basically takes material from somewhere, transforms it into something else that gives value somewhere else. And that value is always more important than the continuation of life of the communities from which it's, that wealth is extracted. And we feel a lot of artistic practice does exactly this, taking value from one place for something else, which is normally the artist's career, the art world, the art institutions, the very idea of art. Um, and this here is an extractive machine. It's the biggest extractive machine in Europe. Uh, it's working probably right now. It works 24 hours a day. Uh, it's in Germany and it takes uh, the brown coal underneath uh, communities. There are about 75 villages uh, that have been already destroyed by this machine for the coal. And so in this situation, what do artists do? Well you know, we're, we're told by the IPCC scientists of the UN, not normally known for their radical pamphlet writing, that we need, we've got 12 years, and they wrote this in 2018, that we have 12 years for rapid, far reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. And for us at the lab, that means changing art. And the book talks very much about this. How do we change art within the capitalist scene? Um, for us, it's not okay and it's not enough That to be an artist right now and to feel deeply that there are 200 species that are forced to extinction every day by the economy and then make an installation about it. An installation that talks about, that reflects on. For us, this isn't enough. For us, art is not to show the world to people, but transform it together. So one of the chapters in the book is called 200 Years of Art and the World is Getting Worse. It's a nod to a beautiful book by James Hillman that's called 200 Years of Psychotherapy and the World is Getting Worse. And in that chapter, uh, we basically talk about uh, what Larry Schinner, our, our historian, calls the invention of art. And he basically says, art is an invention, it's a concept, and it came out of the colonial white European metropolis around 1750. But what else came around 1750 in Europe? Well, another invention. Uh, Basically, steam engines, uh, the fossil fuel, fossil capital, uh, the machines that enabled fossil capitalism to grow. Basically, all this stuff was invented around the same time as the invention of art. And so, in a sense, art and fossil capital have the same extractivist logic embedded into them. But this strange three-letter word, this word art. Most of you probably know that for most of human history and for most peoples on the world today, they don't have a word for art in the way we as European Westerners have this idea of art. It uh, it comes from the Greek techne and the Latin art. And the irony is that even the Greeks didn't have a bloody word for the art. In fact, for them, it, it meant any human activity. This could involve be horse breaking, shoe making, verse writing, vase painting, governing, navigating. Any activity was seen as an art, not because it was done by artists, but because it was performed. And this is the, the key word. It was performed with grace. What is grace? Grace is an act of thinking with and thanking the world. It comes from the old French it means thanks as in grace as in gratitude and for us, what we call in the book an art of life should be an act a gesture of thanking life for giving us life an act of mutual reciprocity an act that never separates ethics from aesthetics and Around 1750 in the white metropolis as this idea, this invention of art evolves, uh, you have these separations, massive separations of the modern, separation between genius and skill, a separation between the beautiful and useful, between art and craft, between culture and nature, and in the end between art and life. And without these very violent rifts, all the ideals and practices and institutions that make up the art system that many of, of us might be part of, they would collapse without these violent rifts. And of course, this idea was pushed and it colonized our imagination, this invention of art. Uh, And ever since, 1750, intellectuals, entrepreneurs, missionaries, armies have spread this invention and turned it into an unchallengeable universal. As Ariela Aishi Azule says, From the beginning art has been one of imperialism's preferred terrain imperial violence is not secondary to art but constitutive of it and the book ends with a chapter entitled life uh, where we talk about an art of life i'm just going to read a tiny little bit uh, of the last chapter on the bockage we have become the territory because it engulfs and nourishes our imaginations and our bodies. We know when the frogs spawn and when the buckwheat is ready to mill. We sense when the potatoes will be harvested and celebrated with a French fries festival. We notice when it's been too dry and the ponds become lifeless. We care when the amphibians mate and the message on our phone reads, walk and drive carefully. It's the night of the fire salamanders. We're familiar with the weave of green lanes, because we learned them whilst ambushing the police. By deserting the metropolis, we learned to pay attention and practice an art of life. But as our friend, the philosopher Isabel Stengers writes, the art of attention is not just giving ourselves to a things a priori defined as worthy of attention, but obliging us to quote, imagine, to consult, to consider, consequences involving connections between what we are accustomed to considering as separate," end of quote. Countless people now hold the picture of the Zad in their imaginations, like one might carry the memory of a work of art, an image that reminds us that we can all shape our worlds otherwise. On the bockage, feelings and desire become form in the shape of a struggle that put life in common at its heart. To many, even though they would never term it thus, this land has become sacred because they sensed its wonder and risked and dedicated so much of themselves to ensure it never became an airport. Quote. Nothing is made already sacred, end of quote. Hermeticist and youth worker, Orlando Bishop reminds us, quote, it becomes sacred when we give our attention to it at a level that reveals what it holds as energy and information, end of quote. When land becomes sacred, the struggle becomes art of everyday life, magic.
0: Jay Jordan speaking six weeks ago at an event to mark the publication of the new pamphlet, We Are Nature Defending Itself, entangling art, activism, and autonomous zones. What Jay said there at the end, which was a bit muffled, was when land becomes sacred and struggle becomes an art of everyday life, magic happens. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. The event also featured a question-and-answer period. Here, the two authors, Isabelle Fremont and Jay Jordan, respond to a question about self-care, about how they stayed grounded and kept their spirits up over the course of the long struggle. I
1: think that one of the things that certainly keeps me going is the extraordinary texture of relationship that they are here, the solidarity that we've seen and this... The feeling that is very difficult to describe, um, to have been part of something that is absolutely extraordinary, and uh, and to, it still happens to me very regularly that even people that really really infuriate me in some situations. I just have to remember that, you know, I just have to look at the forest that is still there, that is still standing, that is, you know, just look at the hedgerows and and look back at these people that, you know, however infuriating, have been part of this struggle and and that all this is still standing thanks to what we've built together. This is something that really, really helps. That's one part. And one of the things that we've also, started doing in collaboration with another art collective um, is a is a collective called the the car the uh, cellule d'action ritual the ritualistic action cell and we basically started to uh, organize and propose rituals at key dates of the of the history of the struggle but also to celebrate the passing of seasons and to really um, to find another way to uh, connect us to the land and to each other. And this has been um, really, I find, a part of some sort of healing process.
3: The importance, I think, for me has been to also have a kind of, what some people would describe as a spiritual practice uh, that involves uh, meditation and rituals and and magic, and to, to have that as a regular practice. It is something I learned from ULEX, which is an incredible educational space in Catalonia, which looks at questions of regenerative activism, uh, and does a load of work against burnout. And what I learned very beautifully from there was, was really also that, you know, I, I realized as an activist having a massive burnout uh, in 2017, that for 25 years, I'd actually put my. Uh, political uh, desires in front of my uh, personal needs most of the time, and so what what we learned really beautifully there was how you know how do you actually balance what your your needs are uh, personal needs are with your political uh, action and desires, and we've been so inspired by that work that Ulex has been doing for many years that we're going to try and translate that here on the ZAD through an education project and working with a group uh, an amazing group here that's called Soin, Soin which means care care, uh, which is doing, has spent a year doing a survey of everyone on the ZAD and looking at their needs for healing and health.
0: Isa and Jay were also asked about the extent to which cartography or map making aided the struggle to defeat the airport construction project
1: cartography and and mapping has been a really really important tool on on the zad for for many years there was actually a cartography group that was set up. And interestingly, it really links to this notion of culture of resistance, because there was someone who was working for the city of Nantes, um, who had access to uh, very, very specific types of uh, software to be able to do really complex mapping. And she came with that um, access and taught people. and, And there are quite a few architects here who are dissident architects that live on on the zad and actually did a lot of uh, of using mapping and and cartography as tools of uh, disobedience so they were um, being able to actually see the various layers because one of the really fascinating things about Apprehending a territory as commons is to reappropriate the the multiple layers of usage that uh, that land is about, and that was uh, really clearly expressed through loads and loads of uh, of maps. It was also um, they were also really uh, extraordinary tools of defiance uh, because they really helped us go to um negotiate with the state with having, you know, the maps of all the owners, the maps of all the people that were renting, um, all the maps of the various farmers and this, and and it really helped this notion that we knew this territory so much better than they did. So and one of the things that for instance in the in the welcome space that is at La Holandière there is a gigantic map and and it's it's a really useful tool also for people to get a sense of the the vastness of the, the territory and seeing all those um, points with all the, the cabins and the collectives and so so it's also very much a tool to um to get more of a, a sense and a texture of what the territory is like
3: we even use mapping actually so during all the eviction threats we work with the cartography group 'Cause we did a whole a big training where we trained a thousand people over eight weekends, uh, to defend the land using um a kind of um orientation game uh, things and using the pirate radio station and and, and walkie-talkies and, and so on and teaching affinity group work and so on and we produced this special map which was called the Zad Atlas and it was made special size so it could go into your pocket and so it wouldn't get wet in the mud and the tear gas and so on uh, and basically it was a, a very detailed map of the blockage in case of eviction so it would show uh, places it would also show key intersections uh, which would need to be blocked to stop the troops coming in, uh, i.e. where barricades could be built and so on. So that was a, another very useful bit of, of mapping. And it had the kind of uh, you know information about uh, legal staff and so on in it and the medical staff and so on in it. So that was a, also a different, uh, another special kind of more hands-on mapping for the territory defense.
0: Another question posed to Isa and Jay was about the process for adding or incorporating new residents into the ZAD, and about other land-based occupations that challenge capitalist initiatives.
1: It's interesting because it's like I think that people who are inspired are very much invited to come and spend time here. It's like it's and it's still less than before, but we st- we still have some people who um, who turn up for the first time and say, "Oh, I've seen the story of the ZAD and absolutely want to live here." And the advice is always the same is like spend some time first and we'll see. you know it's like let's let's actually experiment life together before deciding that this is what we want. It's really important. Uh, there are processes and um, that are partly informal and partly formal. We don't have yet very, very formal processes for people to be um, to to come and um, live here i mean it's it's starting to be put in place and it's very much about finding ways to integrate into the common the life in common and commons buildings it's very often by integrating a collective and finding projects to uh, to get involved in and um and if there are other there have been quite a lot of uh land-based occupations and that actually took the name ZAD um, in okay. France. And a few have actually also won. Like there is a center parks that was um, supposed to um, to destroy, I think it was 40 hectares of forest that was defeated and um, partly also through an occupation of the forest linked exactly like the ZAD to a movement that had loads of other tactics, including um, legal um, procedures and and very um attacks it's like i'm not sure that there is a, a formal network but certainly uh, the zad here really tries to be a point of connection and so there are various events that are being organized very regularly for this kind of struggle to come and meet and exchange and uh, nourish each other. I don't know of a, of a formal network, but it's it's a, here is certainly one of the nodes of the, of the
3: network.
0: Isabelle Fremont and Jay Jordan talking about their new pamphlet, We Are Nature Defending Itself, Entangling Art, Activism and Autonomous Zones, published by Pluto Press as part of its Vagabond series, edited by Max Haven. The book was published in collaboration with the Journal of Aesthetics and Protest. Fremont and Jordan co-coordinate the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. We've put links to the pamphlet and to the lab on our website, againstthegrain.org. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.